Colossians chapter 1. Really this morning our, our songs are all focused around the theme of Jesus Christ and, and who he is and, and what, a, what an, a wonderful Savior he is. Listen to these verses from Colossians 1. Starting in verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, Jesus Christ, the one who came in the fullness of God, was also pleased to reconcile. He, he is the bridge. He's the way that we can come to God. a couple of announcements. First of all, if you have a copy of the bulletin, what you want to do is look at that first page because it lists all the upcoming events in December. And I'm not going not gonna to go over all of them, but it's a busy month, right? Um, but one thing I am going to highlight is this Saturday, there's a Christmas gift exchange here from 2 to 5. So if you're not sure what that is, it also goes by the name White Elephant. And it, it means if you want to participate in that, you bring a, a small gift. Really, it shouldn't probably be anything too expensive or uh, that'll just get disappointing. Um, bring a small gift. It can be humorous. Uh, you know, it can be something somewhat nice or it can even be something gently used. Uh, and we will have a little time for those who want to do that to uh, do a white elephant exchange. But if you're not into that sort of thing, you can come anyway because... Uh, the plan is bring a, bring a treat to share, whether salty or sweet, and uh, so it's just going to be a time to hang out and uh, fellowship and uh, celebrate together as a family. So that's, a, that's coming up on Saturday from 2 to 5. Um, the Christmas program is December 17th, uh, and then finally I want to ask Aaron and Kara to come up, and, um, and uh, we're going to pray for these guys. This is their, their last Sunday here before they 
uh, begin a move down to Alabama. And so uh, we're just going to have them come up and, and send them off. Maybe a couple of elders can come up and join them. And uh, we're going to pray for them. And so um, I don't know, Bob, if you want to grab the microphone, I'll put you on the spot. All right. <laughs> Lord, thank you for Aaron and Kara and their family and for the blessing that they've been and their years here and just lift them up to you and commit their way to you. Pray that you would go before them and prepare all things for them, just sustain them in this big change and this time. And thank you that they'll be able to be closer to family and I just pray for your blessing on those relationships too. And uh, just, again, just thank you, Father, for Aaron and Kara and for their family and, and commit them to you in Jesus' name. Well, uh, when we got back from vacation uh, shortly, the first part of November, <clears throat> uh, within a week, I had a, a pretty nasty cold, and then that cold turned into a sinus infection, and that sinus infection uh, needed to be treated. And so the treatment, the cure for what was ailing me, was a, a, a course of strong antibiotics. And that course of strong antibiotics kind of did the trick. Well, we've been looking at the book of Romans, and last week we kind of ended up the section of chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, which talks about what ails us as humanity. You know, what is the ailment for all of humanity? And his, Paul's diagnosis for ailing humanity was terminal depravity. We're toast, Okay. Uh, apart, apart from Christ. And so that was the deal. We're utterly sinful and unable to escape God's judgment and his punishment in our own power. That's the, the verdict that we reached and that Paul reached for us. And we're helplessly controlled and condemned by sin. But guess what? We're not hopeless. We're not hopeless. We're helpless, but we're not hopeless. And that's the, the message that Paul begins to bring to us the, uh, in the passage that we're looking at this morning all the way through actually the book of Romans. He, he touched on it back in chapter 1 when he talked about the gospel. And so here we see that our loving God provided a cure uh, for, what, for what ails our souls uh, for, because we're unable, um, you know, as, as unrighteous human beings uh, to, to possess the righteousness of God on our own. So he provided it. But we can possess the righteousness of God. And then we can escape the wrath, the just wrath of God. And I want to say that specifically. The just wrath of God. The wrath that's due us is justifiable because of our wretchedness and our sinfulness. And he can do so. He can make us righteous without compromising his character or contradicting his word. And the way that he does that, as we're going to look at this morning, is through faith. But it's not just our faith, it's not our work, it's what God did that enables us to put our faith in, that's the work of Jesus Christ. And so the cure for what ails us comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you have your Bibles, if you have your app or on your phone, you can look it up, or if you want to reach down under the seat in front of you somewhere, maybe hopefully not too far away, there is a Bible. And we're going to be reading from uh, in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21, and we're going to see that Paul shares three important features of this remedy for human depravity. 
And I'm going to read, I'm reading from the New American Standard. It will be, I think, printed for you up on the screen if you want to follow along there. I'm beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, uh, in verse 25, some of yours may have said an atoning sacrifice. Okay, So the fancy 64-cent uh, theological word is propitiation. Okay, In his blood through faith. Verse 25, this was de to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is, it, or is God the, the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will, justly, who will, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The first important feature that I see in the text of this remedy is that the righteousness of God through faith reaches all who believe. Okay, this is in verses uh, 21 through 26, and there are three important considerations or three things that I want us to consider this morning. And again, this uh, basically verses 21 through 26 is one sentence. Uh, so you could uh, break it down a lot of different ways, and so we're going to be interrupting it, but uh, just... Try to follow along, I guess. I'm going to try to march us through the text. First of all, we see that, that, that God's righteousness is revealed apart from the law. Now, we, we began to see this. If you go back to verse 20, read verse 20 of chapter 3. It says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay. So, we see the but. Verse 22, but, or verse 21, but... That indicates a stark contrast. So he's making a contrast between what he's just said and what he's going to say now. So it's a contrast between our total depravity and the desperate in, our desperate inability to, to, to be right in God's eyes. That's chapter 1, beginning with verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And that's contrasted with what comes next with his marvelous mercy in providing a way for us to be justly reconciled to himself. We're at odds with God. We're enemies of God. And he made a way for us to be his family, to be his friends. And that's what he unpacks before us. This way is apart from, the text says, apart from, which indicates by some other means than the law. And the law here means the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, not just not just the first five books, of the, uh, which we sometimes refer to those as the law, but if we remember in chapter 3, we looked at verses uh, 10 through 20, and he talked about, he quoted passages from all over the Bible, and so I think the reference here is to 
the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Old Testament Scriptures by which, he says in the text, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Somehow, God's righteousness was revealed through the Old Testament Scriptures. All right? That way that they were revealed is through the Gospel. Paul said it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and all to, to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, made known. God's righteousness is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures and explained in the passage that we're going to be looking at. It was, explained, it was, it was, it was revealed there, but now he's going to unpack it, starting here but continuing on in chapters four, five, six, seven, eight, and actually all the way through the end of the end of the book. But so here's the deal. Right standing with God, which is what righteousness means. Okay, we're in right standing with God, isn't on the basis of believing God's or behaving God's word. It's on the basis of believing in God's Son. It's a fact that testified to, now if you look at verse 21, so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this on my own. It's, it's, it's being witnessed by or testified to by the law. What is? The gospel is testified to by the entire Old Testament. You say, wait a second. Yeah, so the Old Testament tells us about the person and the work of Jesus. It's testified to by the law and the prophets, a shorthand for the Old Testament. Specifically that, point number two, B, God's righteousness is realized through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of which the Old Testament witnesses or testifies is made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Romans 3. Even, now again, so he's referring to the righteousness as he's talking about verse 21. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There you go. God's righteousness is realized through faith in Jesus Christ. The entire trajectory of the Old Testament is to point out the person and work of Jesus, points ahead to the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I was in church for a long time, and I was like, well, I don't know. The Old Testament's the Old Testament. The New Testament's the New Testament. The New Testament talks about Jesus. The Old Testament talks about God the Father. The Old Testament is telling us all the way through it about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus to redeem us from our sin. Jesus said to the religious leaders in John chapter 5 verse 39, um, you search the scriptures because you, you think that in them you have eternal life. But what does he say? They, the, New, the Old Testament scriptures, are they which testify of me, of Jesus. Where do they do that? They do it in a lot of places. Start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Go to Genesis uh, chapter 15, verse 16. Go to uh, second, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 42 uh, through 50, 66. I mean, it's all over the place. Every book in the Old Testament. Now, there's some books that don't mention God. And Ruth's one of them, right? God's never mentioned in the book of Ruth. Well, it's all about a redeemer. Huh, wonder what that might have to do with. 
the person and work of Jesus. It's all there. And so it's, it's, it's testified all, all the way through. But here's the deal. While the Hebrew Scripture informs us as to the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, it's unable to impart to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it informs us, but it can't impart to us the, 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 this righteousness. Um, I got uh, some, uh, I got a timer. I bought a, a timer, an outside timer for some lights that we put on a tree uh, out in our backyard, okay? So now I have an instruction manual for the timer. And the instruction manual for the timer doesn't determine whether or not the lights come on at a certain time or not. It only tells me how to make that happen. In the same way the Old Testament can tell me how it is that there is this righteousness through God, by God, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but it can't make it happen. It doesn't make it happen. And we saw last week that it's impossible to make it happen through the Old Testament law. The righteousness of God, the Old Testament declared, is delivered apart from any legalistic adherence to the law for which humans might take credit. Okay? And it comes only, the text says in verse 22, only through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 43. It says this, all the prophets testify. Now, this is Peter talking to Cornelius and in Cornelius' house. All the prophets testify of him, Jesus, that through him, his name, Jesus' name, Christ's name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There it is. Peter is saying the entire prophets, they're, they're, that's what they're talking about. Faith, now this is the thing. By faith in Jesus Christ. What do you mean by faith? Faith is not simply knowing that there is a person, Jesus. Okay? It's not just knowledge. Faith is not uh, even accepting intellectually that, that this person, there's a person, Jesus, and he died and he, and he rose again. That's the story about Jesus, and, and you accept that as an intellectual reality. No, faith is actively trusting in the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross as the payment for our sins, and then we, 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 giving us the victory, and rose from the get, dead, giving us the victory over sin and death, and turning from our own self-directed life and trusting fully and surrendering to God. Faith is an absolute change of focus, an absolute complete dependence upon God. When I was in India this uh, past spring, I had a chance to share the gospel in a small village, and I used this illustration. I'm going to ask you to look at this, this, uh, uh, this, this slide of, uh, of uh, his name, his stage name is Blondine. Okay, now maybe you can't see it very well, but he's got a, a rope that's tied across, that's over Niagara Falls. Okay. <clears throat> And he went across this rope several times. Here he's pushing a wheelbarrow across the rope, or on this tightrope across over Niagara Falls. He got back and he said to the crowd, he says, who thinks that I could put a person in this wheelbarrow and push them across and back? And everybody said, yeah, we believe that. He said, well, who would like to volunteer? Nobody did. You see, everybody 
knew that Blondine existed. Everybody accepted in their mental reality that he could actually push a wheelbarrow across a, a rope that's strung uh, uh, over Niagara Falls, but nobody believed in Blondine enough to actually get in the wheelbarrow and see what happened. In Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 5, you have your Bibles, you can see it. Quickly, if not, you might well turn there. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. Right before God. That was Blondine. Nobody accepted it, you see. Nobody had genuine faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 <clears throat> says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified, not declared righteous before God by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh is justified. Now you can... Come to church all your life. You can memorize the, every verse in Awana. You can uh, give money in the offering plate. You can serve on the mission field and still go to hell. Because you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the payment for your sin. And this is for all those who believe. Now, again, when I make these statements, I want you to see this is in the text. He says, uh, for all those who believe, verse 22, for all, all, all those who believe. The universality of the offer is there, okay? The universal nature of God's salvation. All men are, are sinners. All women are sinners that face condemnation. And all who believe in Jesus are made righteous. Everybody's messed up. We're all sick, all terminally ill. And yet, all who believe are cured. All who believe are cured. Everybody who made a purchase on Black Friday or Cyber Monday uh, got the discounts, right? All who made the purchase, all who believe in Jesus are redeemed. And Paul told us, told us why, why, why this is, is, is for all. He says, for there's no distinction. God doesn't discriminate when it comes to who's condemned. He doesn't discriminate as to who he redeems. He redeems all who believe. There's no discrimination by that. All who believe um, will be saved. Romans chapter 12, uh, 10, verses 12 and 13 says this, for there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek. And again, Greek is another name for anybody not Jew. <laughs> so unless you're Jewish here, it's you. Uh, it's me. Okay? For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. For whoever, or everyone, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that should be an encouragement to us. Because God saves proud people. God saves selfish people. God saves hypercritical people. God saves 
controlling people. God saves thieves. We heard about one this morning in the first service who was hanging on a cross (laughs) next to Jesus. You know, hadn't been to Sunday school. Didn't even really probably care about Jesus until he's hanging on the cross knowing he's about to die and go to hell. Then it's like, I... I'm really down on Jesus here. I'm, I'm, it's a good idea. God saves gluttons. God saves those who are murderers, homosexuals. God saves the self-indulgent. Nobody is righteous on their own, and nobody is so rotten that God won't save them. And we're all rotten uh, to the core. Why no distinction? The text says for or because all the Jews and Gentiles alike. This is verse 23. Very familiar verse, right? For all have sinned. All are saved by faith because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why there's, there's no distinction. Verse 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, we read that before. What? There, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God, no, not one. All of us are messed up, right? We're all equally condemned, and we all need the same cure. If we all had the same disease, need the same cure. And so that's what God provided for us in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 24, being justified. Now, that refers to all those who believe. that They're being justified, okay, Or declared, what does it mean to be justified? It's a legal term, right? It means to be declared righteous in God's eyes. Because the penalty for our sin has been paid for. The penalty for our crime is is paid for. And Christ's righteousness then is, is credited to our account. It's... We we are declared to be not guilty, even though we are guilty. We deserve the punishment, but somebody else paid the penalty, so we're off the hook. That's what it means. We're saved, declared righteous. And it tells us in verse 24, being justified as a gift. Uh, well, we all kind of know what a gift is, right? It, it, it's, it's something that's an, uh, unearned. Well, salvation is a gift of unearned pardon. We didn't deserve the pardon, but we received the pardon. And it comes by His grace, which, get this, is an undeserved favor. It's a gift, unearned pardon, by His grace, undeserved favor. It's all of Him, not of us. We didn't deserve it. Every package that you open, if you exchange gifts at Christmas, every package you open is unearned. And undeserved. That's what a gift is. That's what grace is. And that's what salvation is. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. (laughs) A gift of God. Those who are absolutely guilty. Are justly declared righteous. And it tells us here in verse 24, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. A lot of theological words here. 
Redemption. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a payment made to release a slave from their master. Okay, that's the, I mean, it was also to take somebody out of prison too, but that was typically how it was used. But here, what it means is that it's the price that was paid to set us free from the control and consequences of sin. Uh, my, uh, my daughter and son-in-law were in town and yesterday and they, they took some cans to the store. And they were redeeming the cans. What does it mean? Well, they took the cans in and the, they were paid a price to release possession of the property into the hands of another person. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid a price to release us from slavery in sin and condemnation into the hands of the Father. Out of slavery into freedom. The gospel righteousness comes to sinners unable to redeem ourselves by that which the text says, by that which is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It was in that which is in Christ Jesus who paid the price to set all who believe free from condemnation and sin. And verse 25 elaborates, whom God, this is Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly, and then uh, does, he, does ESV say uh, as an atoning sacrifice? Atoning sacrifice or propitiation? Propitiation. Wow. You know, I mean, you read through that and you go, I don't know if I can pronounce that word, uh, let alone know what it means. So we're justified, right? We're justified. We're being justified. That means we're being declared not guilty as a gift by His grace through the redemption, through the price that was paid by Christ on the cross so that he would deliver us from the slave market of sin into the hands of, and, and, and the freedom of, of Christ, of God. And this comes through this propitiation. It's a really fancy word, but it means this. It's a satisfactory payment or sacrifice that was required to appease the wrath of God. The just wrath of God against our sin. We're sinners. God punishes sinners. He's a holy and righteous God. He must punish sin. And his wrath is justly put upon us. But a propitiation means that there was a sacrifice made that he accepted as satisfactory payment for our sin. That's what Christ did. And this was done how? Or with what? Notice the text says, in his blood. Okay, it was done in his blood. 1 John 2.2 says he is a propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? And the price that was paid so that we can be forgiven and accepted by God was in his blood. My kids got money, you know. That was the price that was paid to release the ownership of the cans into the hands of the store okay Jesus paid with his blood 
which means he died in our place. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Peter put it more eloquently, maybe in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Our salvation is not free. It costs us nothing. It costs God everything. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have been redeemed through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ in His blood, and that's the price God paid to save you and me. And we didn't deserve it a bit. In fact, we deserved the exact opposite. We deserved to pay for ourselves, okay? And our appropriation of this propitiation in his blood is through faith. It's through faith. In him, God used his gracious act of offering his sinless son to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay? This is the text. You keep going on in verse 25. That, his, to de- that this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay? That God would be righteous. Now, Isaiah 56, 1 says that, that he, was, he, he offered himself. This is what the Lord says. Guard justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. Now why? Why would he do that Wait and reveal it through his son? It says in the text, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And the cross proves that withholding judgment, so there were sins that were previously committed and God didn't punish them. And the cross of Christ proves that God's delayed justice is an act of mercy and not an act of malfeasance. That he's, he's, not, he's not being mean or he's not being wrong. He's being merciful because he was waiting. Second Peter 3.9 says he's patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. God didn't punish the sins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah and all of the other people in the past. He didn't punish them even when he offered them up at the Day of Atonement. He didn't actually pay for those sins completely. They weren't taken care of. Why not? Because he had something bigger in store. He was waiting in his patience, endurance, do you know that on the Day of Atonement, this is Leviticus chapter 16, which Vern was here. Leviticus is his favorite book. And in Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest would go in and he'd offer up a bull for himself and sprinkle the blood on the altar. Then he'd offer up a goat and, and sacrifice it. And again, it's very graphic and very gross and grotesque. But he would sprinkle the blood on the altar to, as, as a, and then he would take another goat and he'd put his hand on it and he would pronounce the sins of the people on the goat. This was the scapegoat that was to be sent away. Both of those things only, only, only symbolized the payment for sin and the taking away of sin. Why? <laughs> because they were pointing ahead to the person and the work of Jesus Christ whose sacrifice actually atoned for sin. It actually made the payment for sin. It actually covered it. Hebrews chapter 9 uh, talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, beginning with verse 14, how much more then, uh, 
as opposed to these offerings of a goat and bulls and heifers? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself out with, up without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He did it all. He sacrificed it. His sacrifice covered it all. And, and finally, he says, God's righteousness is rooted in Christ's sacrifice through these temporary sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. God patiently passed over previous sins. Why? The text says, for the express purpose, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Demonstrating his righteousness at the present time through Christ's sacrifice for sin, which was, and I, uh, I think John MacArthur is right here when he says, which this sacrifice was sufficient to forgive and blot out every sin that would ever be committed by fallen mankind. It was the final payment and the full payment. It's all over. It was done. Hebrews chapter 10, or yeah, verse 12. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Uh, do we have it? Chad, we got that one or not? Okay, I've got a Bible, so that's good. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. You can write this one down. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for all time. It's done. No more, need, no more need for sacrifices. The result of Christ's redeeming sacrifice is that he, God, would be just. Wait a second. How can God be just through the sacrifice of Christ? Because he paid for sin. God is a holy and righteous God. He can't stand in the presence of sin. He must pay for it. He must punish it. And so he punished it through Jesus. He became just. He demonstrates himself just by sacrificing Christ the righteous demands of his law. And finally, all of that sacrifice, all of that righteous demand was finally and fully met on the cross of Christ. And he becomes not only the just, but get this, he becomes the just justifier of the unjust who just believe in Jesus. How is that possible? Because in his love, he made it possible. He provided a payment. Not, wasn't us. We didn't pay. He, he, he justifies. He became, he made a payment through his son that for our sin and credited to us Christ's righteousness to our account without ever compromising his character, without ever con contradicting his word. So he becomes the just justifier of the unjust who just believe. He did it for us. Uh, I know of someone, not me, not my wife, okay? I know of someone who's driving a car. And uh, they were behind a truck, and then the truck went through the light, and then they went through the light, but the light was red. Huh. Didn't know that till they, uh, you know, the truck kind of shielded the, the, the stoplight. And there was a ticket sent to the home of the owner of the vehicle, which wasn't the person who was driving. Remember this, parents. Uh, you know, whoever the vehicle's registered to gets the ticket, you know. So the ticket came to the owner of the vehicle. But the owner of the vehicle wasn't the person who violated the law. And so what did the owner of the vehicle do? The owner of the vehicle paid the ticket.
They were just in paying the penalty that was due, and they were the justifier of the person who deserved the, to pay the penalty. That's what Jesus did for us. It's God. He became just in paying the penalty and the justifier of those who deserve to pay the penalty by paying it for them. There's another aspect to this remedy. The righteousness of God through faith removes all boasting. All boasting. And there's two, way Paul, two ways Paul demonstrates how this works. First of all, uh, the proclamation declaring that boasting is excluded. This is the first part of verse 27 where Paul says, where then is boasting? You see, Paul's kind of anticipating the questions. He's kind of making a dig at the, at the, uh, the arrogant, um, <clears throat> advantaged Jews who thought that they were better than everybody else. And so what he does, he says, uh, well, where, where is the, the boasting that could happen? Those who are critical of salvation through faith in Christ, to all who believe, he asks, where then is the boasting? And he immediately answers the question, uh, it's excluded. No boasting here, no bragging here. Uh, I have a ring on my uh, right hand that I received as a gift from my grandfather. So do I run around telling people, hey, look at this. I, this is, you should, you should really be impressed. No. It's a gift. Does faith allow for boasting? Absolutely not. Paul says it's excluded. And he says that, I mean, salvation by grace through faith plus nothing on our part is, uh, is no cause for boasting. You can Write this down and look it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 29. Uh, basically, Paul, Paul comes out and he says, so that no man, you believe in Christ, so that no man can boast before God. Okay, so then the proof demonstrating that boasting is excluded is in verses 28 and 29, and there's two proofs. First of all, boasting is excluded by the law of faith. If you look at verse 28, he says, um, by what kind of, or in verse 27, by what kind of law is boasting excluded? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Okay? So we know it's by, it's by the law of faith. Even Abraham, get this, and we're going to get to this next time. Even Abraham was not saved by works. He was saved by faith. So works is not, not the, but here's the problem. Many religious people today, and almost every false religion and a lot of cults believe that people are righteous or justified on the basis of works. And they've got it wrong. Um, I, I heard the story. Don't try this at home, okay? Nobody has justification for trying this at home. Uh, there was a little boy, and he, he took a big uh, clump of dried grass, you know, big clump of dried grass. He placed it down on a hard surface, and then he put a caterpillar that he had found, and he put the caterpillar in the middle of the dried grass and then set it on fire. Don't try this at home. And just before the flames consumed the caterpillar, he reached in and grabbed the caterpillar out. Now, is the caterpillar going to run around to his fellow caterpillar saying, wow, I'm a great guy. I jumped right out of that flame. No. He had no input in his rescue. And neither do we. Neither do we. We're rescued. 
And the reason there's no boasting is in the four in the next sentence introduces it. Four introduces the reason boasting is included. We maintain, verse 28, we maintain that as man or a woman is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There's no work involved in it. It's nothing I do, so I can't boast about what I did. We can't boast about it. But it's apart from the works of the law, which we cannot keep and which cannot save us anyway. The law can't do it. Acts chapter 13, verse 39 uh, says this. For, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Freed and delivered. I don't know about you, but that is comforting. Because I, I mess up every day. And Christ paid for my sin. And I'm not held accountable for that sin. I'm going to go to hell because of my sin. Now that doesn't give me an excuse for sin. We'll get to that later, Romans chapter 6. But it's, it's, it's a freedom that we have. And boasting, is, secondly, is excluded by the law of love, verses 29 to 30. The God of love is not just the God of the Jews only. No, he's the God of the Gentiles as well. In verse 29, well, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Uh, Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles also. And we know this because the basic tenet of Judaism is that God is one, and there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on. Shema, O Israel. There is only one God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. He says, I am the Lord. There is no one else. There is no other God except me. I am the, the arm... Uh, I will arm you, though you have not known me. If there's only one God, and that one God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, and the judge, then over whom does he not have control on this planet? He controls everybody. He has uh, say in everything. So the Gentiles cannot be outside of his care. They cannot be outside of his control. No. I was reading this morning, made me think of Isaiah chapter 49, the end of verse 6. says, he was a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is a, kind of like in Simeon's uh, speech in, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 2, uh, Luke chapter 4, I don't know. Uh, anyhow, he's a light of revelation to the Gentiles that my salvation might come to all the nations. Now, think about the Old Testament. Think about people that God used who were not Jews. People that God worked and brought to to use. Rahab, Ruth, the Ninevites, New Testament, Cornelius. Is God the God of the Jews only? No, absolutely not. He's not the God of the Jews only. He's the God of all people. You know what? Nowadays, Christianity is being slandered as racist. Like, Like, Christianity is right. Well, isn't that the claim that Paul was trying to address here? Is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's not the God of the Jews, Jews only. He's the God of all people. He's an equal opportunity redeemer. And it's not, he doesn't differentiate and he doesn't discriminate when it comes to salvation. Why not? Well, it says in verse 30, given us the explanation since, indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. One true God, rules over all, everybody has the same problem, one solution. That's it. Romans 10, verse 12, 
uh, talks about this. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all. Now get this, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's the same God. Finally, the final aspect of this remedy is that the righteousness of God through faith and faith reinforces the law. So there's another question they come up with or that he tries to answer here. He, he asks and answers, do we then nullify the law through faith? Does all this mess mean that the Old Testament and all that the scriptures has to say is null and void? We don't have to listen to it. We're done with it. Oh, there's two reasons righteousness of faith reinforces the law. First of all, justification by faith doesn't void out the law. What's Paul's answer to that question in verse 31? May it never be. A thousand times no. I think MacArthur said, said it that way. I would just say, God forbid. It's, 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 it's not possible. So then, secondly, justification by faith does, does validate the law. And consider this. How does, how does justification by faith validate the law? Well, first of all, it provides the remedy for sin, which the Old Testament was telling us that's what God was trying to do, was provide this remedy for sin. Isaiah 53, verse 11, uh, talks about this. And you just write these down. I don't have time to, uh, you can look them up later, but Isaiah 53, uh, uh, 11. And then Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said to them, I, I did not come to destroy the law, but what? Fulfill the law. So he's not, he's not counter to the law. Secondly, uh, by confirming that justification by faith is consistent with and commended by the law. That was the whole point of the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 uh, says, Therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ. That's what it's there for. And finally, by enabling those who are in Christ to fulfill the just requirements of the law. That kind of blows my mind. Before Christ, nobody could keep the law fully and then be justified. But once we're justified through faith in Christ, guess what? We can keep the requirements of the law, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 4. So here's the deal. If you're here listening this morning, and all this stuff about Jesus, you've never fully surrendered your life, put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you never got in that wheelbarrow and let him push you across Niagara Falls. You never totally fully surrendered your life to Christ. Guess what? You're dead in the water. You're toast. I mean, that's what the Bible says. You got no hope in yourself, but you do have hope. You have hope in Christ. So I'm saying don't mess around. Quit trying to play games on your own. Quit trying to pull the wool over the eyes of your parents or your coworkers or your family and surrender your life to Christ now. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, three bullet points. First of all, let's think about does my practice of righteousness coincide with my possession of righteousness? Does the possession I have of righteousness manifest itself in the practices that I engaged in on a day-to-day -day basis. Secondly, communicate justification by faith for all who believe joyfully and regularly, especially at Christmas. The reason for the incarnation is the crucifixion, the resurrection, 
and our redemption. It's the best news. We have the cure for what ails the world. And finally, let's celebrate the gracious gift of redemption. Uh, no cause for boasting. Celebrate it with humility. Celebrate it by, as we're going to do in a moment here, considering the incarnation. And that the incarnation leads us to the crucifixion as we take these elements after we celebrate the incarnation. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your spirit would work in our lives. That you'd help us to be, uh, first of all, convicted if we do not know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to realize that at least the Bible's uh, declaration of it is that we're dead in the water. And we are headed for an eternity apart from you, horribly so. And that we need to confess with our, our mouth, uh, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, turn from our sins and trust you by faith to be justified and declared righteous. And I pray that there's anyone there this morning that doesn't know you, that they would do that today. And I ask that you would help those of us who know you, Father. Oh, Lord, help us to celebrate what you've done for us and your work on the cross with joy and communicate it to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first candle on the Advent wreath represents hope. The first Sunday of Advent leads us to anticipate the birth of Christ. Sometimes called the prophecy candle, the first candle harkens us back to Isaiah's foretelling of the birth of Christ and all the promises God gave us in the Old Testament about the birth of Jesus. Please listen along and meditate as we read out of Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel." And Isaiah 9:2 says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. In Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with the justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh,